I got in my car to get my uh, ice scraper and start wiping off all the snow from my vehicle. It was the night of March 23rd, 2015. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed uh, a man lunging towards me. Brooke Morath was on her way to pick up a friend. And immediately pepper sprayed me in the eyes and tackled me to the ground. She was a 21-year-old University of Minnesota senior. I endured a very violent rape. She couldn't see her attacker's face because her eyes burned from the pepper spray. It had gone on for many minutes, um, and I tried fighting. It was that night Brooke's long ordeal began. She would end up feeling victimized twice, first by a violent rape, and then by a botched investigation. Very grateful for the snowstorm because I, he had lost his footing on the ice, and I was able to push away and escape. This is the Inside the News podcast, Investigating Rape. This podcast is a collaboration between the Star Tribune and WCCO Radio. We look at how law enforcement in Minnesota handles the investigation and prosecution of rape and sexual assault. What you're about to hear is based on the reporting and audio recordings of Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and video journalist Renee Jones-Schneider. I'm your host, Jordana Green. This is the story of Brooke Morath, who was attacked and raped in the street when she was a college student. What should have been basic police work turned into a botched investigation. Brooke's rapist was never brought to justice. I just, I took off running. I didn't know where this man was. I didn't know who he was. I didn't see anybody around to help, and I was just pounding on their window, praying they were home, and thankfully they were. From there, they contacted the police, and within minutes, they arrived with an ambulance and many squad cars. And Brooke relived the story for the responding officers from the Minneapolis Police Department. She was then taken to the hospital for an extensive and invasive hours-long rape exam. At that time, for, for how horrific the event was, I was quite calm and, and felt good about their response. I was only at the hospital for a matter of hours. I believe I arrived around 1 in the morning and left about 5 a.m. So my parents had, they drove through the night. Brooke was too frightened to stay in her apartment, so she and her parents rented a room in a hotel where she listened to news reports of her own rape on TV. Turning on the, the TV and just seeing every news station covering this violent assault that occurred and uh, seeing my neighbors being interviewed, different students being interviewed, it, it just didn't feel real. It didn't feel like I was the victim of that crime and again in opening emails for and getting the crime alerts from the university too it was just it was overwhelming but it I hadn't had time to process the situation yet soon afterward Brooke met the investigator assigned to her case Sergeant Brian Carlson from the Minneapolis Police Department Sergeant Carlson was the head of the sex crimes unit where he'd worked for 17 years. Brooke felt like she was in good hands. 
we were introduced to Sergeant Carlson before going to the hotel who, who told us that he was the investigator who was going to be taking over my case and uh, went above and beyond to reassure me and my family that you know, he was the head of this, the Minneapolis Sex Crimes Unit, um, that I was his number one priority, that there was really nothing else on his plate at that time and that he was gonna devote everything to, to catching this guy and telling us also that uh, not only was it his top priority but the entire sex crimes unit, like that they really wanted this guy caught because he was an obvious danger to other people. Each day was following the, the assault, um, brought more questions. When we, I would ask about video surveillance, he said he could only, he could only get some traffic camera uh, surveillance. As painful as it seems, Brooke was hoping her rape, or at least her rapist, was caught on camera. Sergeant Carlson told Brooke she and a hooded man were seen walking on traffic cam footage, but it was unusable because the man's face was hidden. There was also video from a Target Express, but Carlson claimed she wasn't on it. More on that later. In the meantime, Brooke had another idea. The parking lot where the rape took place was ringed by stores the kind of businesses that would have video surveillance cameras. There was the Blarney Pub and Grill, a Jimmy John's, and Insomnia Cookies. Brooke had walked directly in front of all of them on her way to her car. She thought maybe her rapist had walked that way too. It, was, it wasn't until about a week after the assault when I asked him again about it uh, that he agreed to take me to different businesses and and ask for any video surveillance they might have. When we did that, all the store managers told us that it's it's too late. Usually law enforcement arrives within 24 hours and there's no problem, but that too much time had passed and uh, it would have been since rewritten with more recent footage. So that was extremely valuable and critical piece of, of solving the crime and finding this guy, but that was a lost opportunity at that point. To understand exactly what kind of opportunity was lost, I spoke with Richard Mankiewicz. He's a sergeant with the Orange County, Florida Sheriff's Department, who has supervised the sex crime squad for 12 years. I know I've, I've done hundreds, you know, probably thousands of these types of cases. And when we get them, I call out my entire sex crimes team. You know, I had 10 detectives, two analysts working on this case. Um, we start with a big uh, neighborhood business canvas. Um, it's crucial to gather as much video surveillance as quickly as possible. I call it the investigative window of opportunity. You have such a short period of time to gather this crucial evidence in these sexual assault cases, whether it be DNA, whether it be witness, witness victim statements, video surveillance, that it has to be done immediately in order to get that. Because everyone knows, you know, these video cameras, they override after a certain amount of days. Um, so that day, you go out and you get as much video as possible. No one's there. The business is closed. 
you go immediately when the business opens to get that evidence. Because that could be the difference between making the case and not. Why do you think there was a delay or why is there any delay in any of these cases? There shouldn't be. Um, this is, you know, investigative 101 type of stuff. Everyone knows that there's, I mean, we're in 2018 now. Just about every house, every business has some kind of surveillance going on into it. Why it wasn't done, you know, poor supervision, poor training. Um, you know, there could be a lot of reasons why, but it shouldn't happen. That's, that's the main gist of it. That type of thing should not happen in these type of cases. The two Star Tribune reporters who spoke to Brooke, Brandon Stahl and Jennifer Bjorhus, have been researching how law enforcement responds to reports of rape and sexual assault in Minnesota for more than a year. They've reviewed over a thousand case files, with the primary focus being on more recent cases from 2015 and 2016. The findings are troubling. They are astonishing, to be honest with you. We found that only one in four cases was sent to prosecutors. We found that only seven out of 100 reports uh, result in a conviction. We found hundreds of cases where um, the suspect was never interviewed and an identified suspect was never interviewed. We found hundreds of cases where witnesses, key possible witnesses, were never interviewed. Key evidence was never collected. Their reporting, now available on StarTribune.com, reveals deep, systemic problems with the way the criminal justice system in Minnesota handles sexual assault and rape. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, two reporters, uh, an editor reviewing these cases and coming to these conclusions about these cases not being followed up on or being adequately handled. So we gathered a group of about a dozen law enforcement experts from around the country, people who train in this stuff, people who write these types of guidelines as to here's what you're supposed to do. And we had them review about 160 of these case files, and they found that only about one in five were even adequately handled. Jennifer Bjorhus joined Brandon Stahl in investigating these cases after the staff at the Star Tribune realized the findings were much bigger than one story. There were some cases where, you know, the members of our expert panel who reviewed it just said, what is this? This is this is shameful. Why why is this investigator uh, investigating sex crimes? Why are they still on the job? Why are they doing this? We are finding police departments that have conviction rates of, of two or three out of 100 reports. I think one of the shocking uh, numbers that come out of this, of reviewing all of these cases, is police only send a quarter of these cases over to be considered for charging. They only send a quarter of the cases for charging. Why? Great question. That's what we're trying to understand. And the consequences of these investigative failures are devastating. Rapists are going free. Rapists are going free and women are getting the message um, that, um, you know, think twice before you report this, which is a horrible message, you know, to be sending. And we completely want to change that. Now back to that Target Express surveillance video we mentioned earlier. At first, Brooke claims Sergeant Carlson said he couldn't find Brooke anywhere on the footage. She persisted. Brooke knew she was on that tape. After looking again, she says Sergeant Carlson says he did find her on the video. And I assured him that I'd walked directly in front of that and that that's impossible. And 
he must you know have the wrong time or or something and and I didn't let it go and kept pushing him to to look look again and and he finally did and just said, blamed it on oh my bad had the wrong time and which was frustrating and especially for somebody who had claimed to have all this time on his hand to be ma- making these these errors with not not responding immediately and getting this the video from different businesses to now when we have a video you almost threw it out because I wasn't on it but just from lack of being careful and meticulous about searching through and, and finding the right time I mean it was just very disappointing that I'm starting to question at that point how committed he is to solving this and questioning maybe his, his capability Now, more than three years later, Brooks' case remains unsolved. In our conversations, Brooke recalled Sergeant Carlson told her there were never any tips that could lead to a break in her case. But when Brandon Stahl obtained her case report from MPD, it showed that someone did, in fact, call in a tip to police the day after Brooke was raped. The tip was from a gas station in Savage that reported a man acting suspicious who matched the description on the news. A white man, average build, black hoodie, black sweatpants with white stripes. The tipster's phone number was included in the report. Brandon called the tipster to see if MPD followed up on the lead. They did not. And the video surveillance from the gas station of that suspicious man was never obtained. At WCCO Radio, we're working with the Star Tribune to get to the bottom of why this is happening. Is it incompetence? Lack of protocol or training? Lack of resources? Lack of empathy? We'll also be hearing from journalists who are investigating these questions. And we will hear, too, from people inside the system, like retired police officer Mike Martin, who was head of the Minneapolis Sex Crimes Unit in 2012 and 2013. Sex crimes has not historically been a priority within uh, the police department. Murders, shootings, aggravated assaults are the things that are more likely to um, be important, not only to the community, but also to the politicians. Not necessarily for the investigators who are in there. Some of them are tremendous investigators who want to be in the sex crimes unit. But for the command staff, it was definitely uh, a dead-end job. We'll continue to bring you the stories of women who were brave enough to come forward, first against their attackers, and then against a system they believe failed them. Women like Brooke Morath. I spoke with Brooke last week about moving forward. There are moments um, where I do feel maybe I should just move on, but I'm more more focused on less on like on justice for myself and you know identifying definitively who you know who my rapist is. And I'm more that drive has been shifted more towards okay, I may not have much control in that realm, but this should never this investigate this process should not have to happen to other victims, and that's something I felt that I could do something about. Brooke last spoke with Sergeant Carlson about the investigation of her rape on February 17, 2016. She called him again in the spring of 2017 to ask if it was okay for her to talk with the Star Tribune without jeopardizing her case. He said it was. He has since retired from the Minneapolis Police Department. 
We reached out to Sergeant Carlson and the MPD for comment on Brooks' case. Sergeant Carlson told the Star Tribune he worked very hard on Brooks' case, and the department did release a statement. It reads, We thank the Star Tribune for looking into how law enforcement officers throughout the state respond to reports of sexual assault. It is an important conversation, one the MPD engages in with other law enforcement professionals, social service providers, advocacy groups, and victims on a daily basis. First and foremost, our department ethos regarding these cases is centered on the victim, assuring them we do everything in our power to hold another person accountable, in accordance with the law, in every case we investigate. We are ever mindful that at any point, information could be provided changing the case investigation for detectives and prosecutors. Consequently, the MPD is very deliberate in recognizing any comments made through the news media could jeopardize future convictions and re-victimize the victim. If and when the Minneapolis Police Department responds to our Investigating Rape podcast, the mic will be open. For Brooke, now her pursuit of justice has become more than just about her case. If, if I happen to figure out something with my case, and ha- I mean, great. Wonderful, but I I would love so much more to see change in the actual investigation process. A striking pattern we've seen in cases we've followed is that when they do move forward, it's because the women themselves, the victim, gets involved, sometimes at their own risk. That's true of the next story we're going to bring you, the story of Amber Mansfield. Next thing I know, I was waking up on the floor, He had punched me out first. He was on me, and I remember as he was choking me, Samir will never see you again, and this is what it feels like to take your last breath. Amber Mansfield says she was raped by a childhood friend. She reported it to police. Her case file, obtained by the Star Tribune and reviewed by WCCO Radio, shows no indication that investigators interviewed the man she accused of attacking her. That man is a convicted rapist and a registered level three sex offender. Amber felt so vulnerable, she dropped the case and shut up to protect her daughter. But when he struck again, twice in the same night, Amber knew she must do something. Here, Investigating Rape, Episode 2, Serial Offenders, next. The Inside the News Investigating Rape podcast is created by me, Jordana Green, Jared Goyette, and Dan Colhane, with WCCO Radio. With reporting and audio credits from the Star Tribune's Brandon Stahl, Jennifer Bjorhus, Mary Jo Webster, and Renee Jones-Schneider. Star Tribune editing credits are Abby Simons, Dave Hagee, Eric Wiffering, and Suki Dardarian.